I doubt younger listeners are going to remember this at all. But in 1979, there was a pretty big splash in the news because a hotshot anthropologist named Dr. Neil Wallace discovered a lost tribe in a valley in the hills of Bolivia. He called them the Valley People. Wallace came back with pictures, notes, some audio recordings. Basically, it was as much proof as you could possibly have back in 1979. He wrote a very successful book on the experience and then started touring college campuses for the next few years, giving lectures and earning a pretty good living while doing so. And never once throughout all those years did he ever reveal the exact location of the valley. He said he owed it to them and to us all to keep that secret. In 1998, there was a tragedy at the Wallace House. A massive fire, an infamously grotesque crime scene, and a missing anthropologist who seems to be the key to it all. This is the story of Dr. Neil Wallace, and I call it All Around the Maypole. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. The book is called One People. Tales of a Renegade Anthropologist by Dr. Neil Wallace. And I'll be honest, it's a damn fascinating read. The copy I read, it's like from the 15th printing, I think. And a lot of people consider it to be a classic, if not the classic, of the genre. In other words, this isn't another self-published book, as admittedly is so often the case with my kind of fringy true crime stories. Not this time. This book is legit. It's basically required reading in every single Anthropology 101 class in the country. The book shows a man of science using ethics and morals to guide his interactions with a culture. Also, it shows a man with a lot of heart getting to know these people as individuals. I'm not going to read to you from the book because, I mean, it's really easy to find. You should just go to Amazon and get a copy and read it. Not now, of course. Later. Much much later. After I tell you about the handwritten letter the police found. After the fire died down, they went in seeking evidence. They found a neatly folded letter in the mailbox. Maybe left there to protect it from the fire. The contents of this letter have never been publicly revealed until a few weeks ago when it was quietly released into public record. Since Neil Wallace is no longer on the radar of the American public, it went widely unnoticed and almost entirely unreported. After I read this letter, I realized that this is a story that I had to share. So... I'll be clear before I start. 
Dr. Neil Wallace has not been seen in 20 years, and he's wanted in suspicion on some pretty heinous stuff. But these are his words in my mouth. I'm going to try my best to do them justice and to make his story feel as real to you as it feels to me. Because, y'all, I get goosebumps off this. The letter begins. The dogs were shrieking. They were so scared. I sat inside the back door with a gun, too afraid to go out and check on them, too afraid of what might be out there in the darkness. I thought it was bad when they screamed. It was worse when they went silent. I have to make sense of this. As much as I wrote about my experiences in the jungle, there was one story that I never told. Through it all, there was something I always kept to myself, one lie I always maintained. I always claimed that the valley people gave me a fond send-off with supplies to see me home. This is not true. When I left that hidden valley, I was running from a scene of abhorrent carnage. I was running for my life. But I believe that now I have run as far as I can. Whatever evil haunted the valley has made its way here to my home. After so many years, it has finally found me. Since returning from the Bolivian jungle, I have given more than 250 lectures, and to a time, each one began the same way. I wish I could say it was I who found the magnificent tribe called the Valley People, but in fact it was they who found me. Corny, possibly grammatically incorrect, but the casual crowds really liked it. The truth is that months of research had been put in just to find a rough possible location for the tribe. At the time, I was only 50% certain the tribe even existed. It was more of an educated guess than anything. I had found a journal article about a Bolivian farmer who went out to the Great Ridge lands uh, and crossed the border with Brazil. He had been sold a phony treasure map which had led him to the middle of nowhere. The man fell into a creek bed, was washed several miles downstream, knocked unconscious. After that, he spent three days wandering until he came across a secluded valley. This farmer claimed that there was a primitive tribe of natives living there. They spoke a strange language, and they still wore face paint and handmade clothes. The farmer said they were very kind, they gave him food and water, and then escorted him back to the river and pointed him north. A former colleague of mine, Dr. Henry Mercer, now a teacher in Bolivia, wrote that journal article on the case. He had, in fact, spoken to the farmer and gotten enough details to make a truly tantalizing feature. His journal piece was briefly discussed in the halls of academia around the world, and that is where it came to my attention. A lost tribe. In 1979, it defied belief. But the only evidence was anecdotal, the word of one uneducated farmer. Ultimately, no one cared enough to investigate. No one but me. 
The result of that investigation was my first book, which recently went into its seventh printing. It was the basis for my entire career. When the Valley people found me, wandering lost and dehydrated and sick in the hills, it's true, they did discover me. And after all this time, I feel that they still define me. I knew it would be this way. I realized it even as I was running for my life from that valley. This was the discovery which would become a permanent part of my life. So I treated it like a narrative, and I edited it. I've never fully come clean. Maybe this is why these things are happening to me now. Maybe I need to make a full and honest accounting. There is one story I've never told about my time there. The circumstances surrounding my exodus from the valley have been redacted. I knew even then that the events of my final day would taint and corrupt how my research was viewed. People would read my account and only care about the end. They would overlook every amazing thing about these gentle people and focus only on the unspeakable bloodbath at the end. Now is time for complete truth. letter continues. Now is the time for complete truth. The Valley people were less a tribe and more a collection of extended families. There were 16 different families that I was personally introduced to scattered throughout the few hundred acres of land within the Valley. I was allowed to stay there as an official guest of Kual. Kuol was not the chief, because these people did not have a chief or a single leader, but he was an elder of sorts, he was one of the oldest and most respected hunters in the valley, and also a bit of a medicine man. Kuol had seven wives and 23 children. I didn't stay with his people very often, but my presence in the valley was overall accepted because of Kuol's stamp of approval. More often than not, I stayed with Kuhoa, who was the brother of Kual. Kuhoa had three wives, 16 children, and was a very skilled bow hunter. His cluster of huts was about a kilometer from Kual's compound. We visited together regularly, and more often than not, I stayed with his people. Kuhoa was a large, strong man who liked to laugh. Of anyone in the valley, 
I communicated the best with him. It was with his help that I managed to quickly put together a fairly respectable lexicon of their language. That, combined with pantomimes and facial expressions, were usually enough to convey my meaning. But Kuhoa got me more than the others, and I him. Kuhoa was larger than life, even amongst a people who were all larger than life. He liked to chew bark from a certain tree found on the ridge to the north. It made him feel dizzy and, quote, want to make children with his wives. <laughs> he wanted to teach his daughters how to shoot with a bow, but all of his wives did not like this idea because it went against tradition. Kuhoa also liked to cook, which was also against tradition. When you live with a native people as an anthropologist, you tend to keep a certain emotional distance between you and your subjects. You can be kind and involved and still be detached. It makes for more honest research. Kuhoa was different, which is why he wasn't featured more in my book. He was the only person in the valley who asked me about my world. The others, it was as if they needed to keep their heads buried in the sand, but not Kuhoa. Never him. He traded information and stories with me, quid pro quo, and we learned about each other's people, their customs, their sports, their fashions, their beliefs, their legends, their history. With him, I didn't see a subject. I saw a man, a comrade, and an instant friend. It would feel like a betrayal to speak of our time together, especially with how it all ended. A few nights before I left, there was a tribal meeting at dusk. It was only for the men and the older women. From afar, I could hear shouting and some crying. Later that night, I sat with Kuhoa at the fireside. He had taken to sharing his bark with me, and I have to say it was powerful. My entire mouth was numb, and my mind was a strange blend of racing and perfectly calm. He explained the meeting to me and said that I should leave the valley and return to my outer land. Bad days were coming, and my presence was neither wanted nor needed. Very soon, it would no longer be tolerated. In time, I might even come to be viewed as a portent of bad luck. Things were changing in the valley. Dark omens were gathering. Kuhoa's oldest son had a dream the previous night. In this dream... A man and a woman were bound together by their own exposed entrails, tied up into knots, holding them together as they screamed in an alien language and tore at each other's flesh with rib-bone knives. The valley people knew of this dream. It was a part of their oral tradition, their stories and songs. There was a particular song about a terrible tragedy either three or four generations ago. Although I had a fairly firm grasp on their language, the finer points of their number system were still lost on me. In the song, a child has a dream of those same awful people. They were called the Butchers. Soon after this dream, four families in the valley were dead. The original version of this song was allegedly 17 generations old, but they never forgot it because the dream always came back, and the evil always followed it. They believe the dream was a portent for a 
sickness of the soul. That's what Kuhoa called it. The dream brought evil into the valley, and it would end in blood as it always did. That's what the song said had happened, and that's what the song said would happen again. The valley people didn't have books or stone tablets. Their songs and their stories were their history. Kuhoa did not believe that the dream and my presence were connected, but he could not be sure what the others in the valley would think. He confided in me that he thought them all backwards and stupid. He said, they think a man should not cook, that only women cook. My wives are terrible cooks. That one got him yelled at by all of his wives at once. I remember how I laughed all the way back to Kual's site where I was sleeping that night. What I dared not tell Kuhoa, and what I dared not reveal in my writings after the fact, was that I had previously heard of these nightmare people, these mutilated butchers. It was a dark fairy tale that was told widely around Bolivia and in parts of Brazil. They were bickering boogeymen, sometimes siblings, sometimes lovers, who were used to keep impressionable children in their beds after dark. Strangely enough, outside the valley, they were also called the butchers. To tell the tribesmen this, even dear, reasonable Kuhoa, might arouse undue suspicion. They were a very superstitious people. And in all honesty, I concealed it afterwards to my contemporaries because it implied that maybe the valley people were not as lost as I wanted everyone to believe. Did they in fact share a common ancestor who imparted common stories? Had a tribesman escaped the valley and brought their ancient stories into the so-called outer lands? Was there a connection between their legends and the legends of the Outer Lands? A male and a female connected by their entrails is quite specific after all. How could a completely isolated people have a decades-old mythology that was so similar to the outside world? I now think that I know the truth. And the answer is far more sinister than I had imagined. stories that are dark and gruesome. It is my raison d'etre. Sometimes there are stories that are shocking and appalling even to me. And so I would like to offer to my more sensitive and delicate listeners the chance to stop now before things get really ugly. You have been warned and the letter continues. 
The next morning, I was woken by a hue and cry. A child was screaming, and people were starting to gather. By the time I got there, not a half kilometer away, I saw over 20 people, which for this place was a massive crowd. Kuhoa was already there. He gestured that I should leave. At his feet was what the child had found, a nest of young Rhea birds that had been killed. As I got closer to the bloody mess of feathers and flesh, I was shocked to see that the six birds had all been gutted and their entrails pulled out and tied together in tight little knots. The carcasses had been laid out in a circle, the bundle of knotted viscera laying neatly in the center, connecting them all. Kual had one of his grown sons, of which he had four, walk me back to the compound while the families all met and talked. That evening, Kual returned. He looked tired. Kuhoa was with him mostly to help translate. My presence, the dream, and the tableau of birds was too great a coincidence for the valley people. No one in the valley would ever slaughter good meat like that. Resources here were too dearly valued. Kuhoa assured me that I was not in any danger. Yet. Because they were a fair and just people. But I was suspected. There was a solution. It was explained that I would sleep in Kual's hut that night. Kual would sit with me and watch me all through the night. He would see if I left or if my spirit left my body. In addition to being the oldest and most respected man in the valley, Kual could also tell if souls wandered from bodies while they slept. I agreed to this unreservedly. Of course, I had no choice but to do so. I slept on Kual's floor that night. He sat in the corner, chewing bark and watching me. His wives came and went throughout the night, taking turns sitting with him. His wives ranged in age from still in puberty to postmenopausal. I woke up several times during the night, and there seemed to be a different wife each and every time. The night went entirely without incident. I slept somewhat fitfully due to the circumstances, and then Kual was shaking me awake at first light. He smiled at me. I had stayed in my bed, and my spirit had not wandered from me. He was convinced that I was not the evil in the valley, and so he would allow me to pack my things and to leave the valley immediately and never return. I was packed up and ready to go in ten minutes. Kual and three of his sons would walk me to the edge of the valley at the base of a notch in the ridge, which was the easiest way in or out of the place. I requested that we stop off at Kuhoa's site so that I could wish the man good tidings. Kual reluctantly granted my request. He was very fond of his brother, and he liked that he saw what he called a brotherhood between us. Above all, the valley people valued those bonds of kinship and friendship. Ultimately, that was what allowed them to keep surviving after, according to several of their songs, 180 generations in the valley. That's just a guess. I could never fully decipher their system of counting. 
these bonds were so strong between the families that when we came upon Kuhoa's campsite and when we saw what was waiting there for us, Kual and his sons all fell to the ground weeping. In this microcosm of the world, these people had never before known any truly inhuman horror. These people had not seen war crimes or genocide. They knew nothing of Hitler's ovens or Jack the Ripper's mutilations. These were a people of peace, and even their nightmares were usually peaceable ones. And now there was this. Kuhoa. My dear friend Kuhoa was dead. So were his three wives. So were his 16 children. Their corpses were splayed out in a circle around a central tent pole. They had all been eviscerated, but unlike the birds, they had not been bound together. Instead, they had all been tied to the pole, their guts bound with knots to the wood, like a maypole covered with damp red ribbons. The oldest son, the boy who had the dream, was somehow still alive. He coughed blood and moaned and held his open abdomen closed the best that he could. He looked at me, confused and scared, and I fell to my knees. I vomited. And then when my head cleared, I knew what I had to do. I ran. I ran from the death. I ran from the valley. I ran from the truth. I ran in fear, not from the people of the valley, but from the evil presence that lived among them. And I kept running for decades. Until now. Now I stop running. Now I tell the whole truth. Last week I had a dream about a man and a woman. They wore butcher smocks and held long, pitted bone blades. Their guts were knotted like purple ropes, and they argued and hacked and slashed at each other. Just like Kuhoa described, they shouted in a bizarre alien language. It took decades, but the butchers had finally caught up to me. This morning, in the light of day, I finally got up the nerve to go out to the kennels. I knew what I would find there, but I had to see it for myself to be sure, and I had to hide it before my children woke. Our dogs were all laid out in a circle, their entrails a wreath of knots. I know what's happening, but I don't know how to stop it. And I don't know what's next. That's the end of the letter. There was a fire at the residence of Neil Wallace in 1998. This blaze ravaged the home completely, killing everyone inside during some kind of family gathering. Two days later, police revealed that Wallace himself was not among the dead and was still at large. They also revealed that the fire was not the cause of death for any of the nine people in the house. 
They officially withheld details on the causes of death as a holdback for their investigation. So it was never made public how those people died that night. But I guess now, after reading this letter, we know why the cops always referred to him as the Maypole Killer. you for listening to another gut-wrenching episode of A Scary Home Companion. If you have any feedback, or if you have music of your own you'd like to submit, you can email me at ascaryhomecompanion at gmail.com. Music for this episode was provided by Denial Lily, main titles by Chelsea Oxendine, And we use the song Shadow Man by Lobo Loco, and two songs with titles I honestly can't pronounce by the band Opo, which can be found on the Free Music Archive. I'd also like to thank Jeff Davidson, who served as my coxswain, kept my boat straight and moving forward. Join us again soon for more horrific tales at A Scary Home Companion.